Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for the welcome you, you gave to, to my brother last weekend when he was here. I know he felt your love. And uh, that's always a, a really cool thing to me as pastor for my brother to come and to know that he's loved by my family. And uh, it's, so I'm really grateful to, to you for it. Um, and I hope every family in the church has the joy of, of seeing their sons, best friends with each other. It's, it's the way I was reading the Bible this morning and it, it said that one of the sons of Aaron served the Lord, and at his right hand was his brother He-Man. I don't remember if it was He-Man that was at the right hand or He-Man was the server, but I thought, isn't that cool to be with your brother in serving God? Isn't that the way God has designed it and the way it should be? So I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thank you for your kindness, and I pray that God gives you the joy that I have someday yourself of getting older and knowing that your family loves your brother or your sister, right, which is equally true. Now, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the midst of a series of passages where Jesus speaks about the need for fruitfulness, and how fruitfulness is the single distinguishing criterion between the people of God and those who are not. Those who are God's bear fruit, and those who do not belong to God do not bear fruit. The Bible is very clear on this from Genesis to revelation that fruit is essential. There's the fruit of the tree and the garden of Eden and Adam is set there as a gardener. And a gardener is a man who brings fruit. Eve is given the, the work of being fruitful in the home. Adam is given the work of being fruitful outside the home. And fruit is, is at the beginning. Fruit is there at the end. We're told at the end that at the very last of, of revelation, which is from this page of the Bible about, okay, to about this page, the theme is the same. Uh, at the end, we find that the tree of life, which was there in the Garden of Eden, is there, and its fruit is for the healing of the nations. And the, the trees that, that line the boulevard of heaven bear fruit in season and out of season. And so that there's no season for fruit, there's continual fruit in heaven. We will be bearing fruit for God in eternity. That's what this life prepares us for, is the work of eternity. And so it's vital that we bear fruit. And I know that you and I have together been stirred and challenged as we look at Jesus and what he says about fruit and how we should be bearing it. But I wanted, because we've spent two weeks outside of Matthew, I'm going to take a third and focus on the way that we bear fruit. God's methods for bearing fruit and uh, I'm going to do it from a, a chapter that I read during these weeks that I was not preaching, which I think summarizes four principles that are essential to bearing fruit. And I will run through those with you in a moment. But the first is just to honor God. Honoring God is bearing fruit. To embrace death, that we must embrace death. That we must proclaim our willingness to bear fruit. We've got to state our goal and then we have to take real action. That we honor God, that we embrace the reality of death, that we state where we're going, 
and what we're going to do, and that we take real action on the way there. This is the outline I'm going to be following. The passage we're going to be looking at together is a long one. It's 1 Samuel 17. So I invite you to stand with me. We're going to be reading 49 verses, so if you want to move from leg to leg as we make our way through, I will understand. All right, 49 verses. That's about eight minutes. Let me time myself here. <laughs> I'm going to read fast, all right? This is a story that many of you will know, and so I, I want to read it fast because there's some parts of it that I thought about leaving out, and I thought, no, I'm just going to read the whole thing, all right? Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. This is the story of David. It's his first public appearance. Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokoh, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Sokoh and Zekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain, these ten loaves, and run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up. From the army of the Philistines, he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, free of taxes. 
Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? People answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence, the wickedness of your heart, for you come in order to see the battle. And of course, they're not fighting, are they? David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Now, what's David doing? Well, he's encouraging people saying, hey, look, look at the reward. Why aren't you fighting? When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul and he sent for him, the king sends for David. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He sees that no one else will do it, and he says, right off, I will go. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments, put a bronze helmet on his head, and clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field, little boy. The little boy's not in there, but it's in there, right? <laughs> then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David 
put his hand into his bag, took from it a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, so that he fell on his face to the ground. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to speak to us through it this morning. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will allow it to come not as mere words that tickle the brain, but with the Spirit, bringing conviction and power, Father. May it fall on my life and all of our lives as as the seed of life, Father, as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. There is, I don't think, a more fruitful man in the Bible than David. Certainly, he's right up there with the most fruitful of the men of Scripture. Takes his place with Abraham and and Moses. And David is fruitful in part because he has children who remain fruitful after him. It's one of the measures of his fruitfulness that his children follow him and love the God of their father David and largely obey him, though there are some terrible exceptions. David, as far as kings of Israel goes, is without question, to my mind, the most fruitful. Though you might put, um, you might put other of his descendants in with him in the front rank, like Hezekiah and Josiah, of whom the Bible says there is none like them before or after. I don't think that's saying that, because it says it about both Hezekiah and Josiah. So I think it's just a statement of general greatness. It's not a, a truly comparative statement. But David is there. He is the man after God's own heart. It's his, his descendant that God has promised will receive a throne that's greater than David's. And David is the, the progenitor, the, the founder of the line that becomes the line of Jesus. And so, in a sense, if, if we know God today and we love him, We're following in the steps of David, who was the man after God's own heart, and who stands as an example to us today of what it means to be fruitful for God. We sing David's psalms. Much of our worship centers around this man. He gave us the the order to sing. He gave us instrumentalists. He, He arranged the manner of worship that's still the manner of worship of us today. He gave us the songs that we sang this morning. He's just... He's fruitful. It's 3,000 years, over 3,000 years since he lived. And yet, he lives because of his fruitfulness. So he's an an immensely glorious man and obviously fruitful. And his life bursts onto the public stage in this chapter that we've just read. In the midst of cowardice. Because what's striking is that for 40 days, his brothers have been there and have run. Everyone's run from Goliath. No one's been willing to fight. His father said the armies are fighting the Philistines, but that is manifestly not taking place, is it? There is no fighting going on because the minute Goliath takes his stand day by day, everyone runs. And he mocks them and he laughs at them and they run. And then when David comes and speaks, they yell at him as though he's the problem. And so we have David appearing. Now, David has appeared in Scripture just before this in the the previous chapter when he was anointed by Samuel 
to be the king in the place of Saul who has fallen out of favor with God because of his sin. And so we don't know the chronology of how these events take place. We're not certain of how it is that, that, that it all fits together. It's kind of a mystery. The Bible doesn't always tell things in chronological order. And so you're, you try and figure out, now, did this happen first or did that happen first? And you know as you go on in the story of David that his, his, the other thing he's famous for, he's famous as a warrior. He's famous for his songs and his worship of God and that he shows up because Saul is having dark fits from the Lord. And, and he's bouts of t- terrible depression and a- anger and anxiety. And so his men, his leaders try and find someone who can play music for him to calm him. And they find David. And they bring him and he sings for Saul. And so you wonder, did that happen before this or after this? And we, honestly, we don't know. I think that it is telling that the story of Samuel's embrace of David precedes this, that David has been anointed to be king. And if you remember that, Samuel went to the house of Jesse, and Jesse, this old man, parades the pride of his household, beginning with Eliab, the oldest, and Abinadab, and Shimei before him. And and Samuel says, no, he's impressive, but that's not the one. No, no, no. And they get to the end of the line, and they say, well, Samuel says, well, is there another? And they say, oh, yeah, the kid out in the field. And so he says, call him in. And God says to Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. Well, maybe that helps explain a number of things in this story. Maybe that helps explain the resentment of the older brothers of David. Kind of like Joseph with his dreams that had him receiving a prominence before in front of his brothers, which caused his brothers to want to kill him. Maybe this is the same thing going on here with with David. Um, It also, I think, could explain the the character and nature of this man. Although the character and nature was there when God anointed him. Had Samuel anoint him. I don't know. It is certainly true, though, that a knowledge that God has claimed you and called you through election. That God has put his stamp on you and made you his own is the best encouragement to fruitfulness we can possibly have because we know if God has chosen us that none can come against us. Who can stand against us? As my brother preached last weekend, this knowledge that we have been chosen by God is essential to fruitfulness. And David knew it. Not only did he know it, but he rejoiced in it, and he claimed it, and he lived by it. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we talk about fruitfulness. Because David is living under the the overarching canopy of God's election. And everything he does in life is under that canopy, knowing that God is for him. Knowing that he is God's. And so I speak to you this morning, and I say, if you would say that you're a child of God and you give fruit of it in your life, it's not because you're trying. Because if you're trying, you're not trying hard enough. Because if your basis for saying that I am God's is what you've done, then you haven't done enough to be God's. Only Jesus can do enough. And only Jesus can make you worthy of God's choice of you and make that choice real. And so David is living here not in his own power. It's obvious, isn't it? He's living in the power of God. 
He's saying, look, there's a God, and that God is who is here. It's not me. I may be a little impuny. It's not me. There's a God in Israel. And so the first step that we see here with David is a step that precedes actually the story, but then it, it, it comes to prominence in the story. We wouldn't know it if we didn't have this story. And that is that David chooses to honor God. David chooses to honor God. Now, David doesn't choose to honor God in this story for the first time in his life. David has been a young man who served faithfully in his father's household. David was a young man who protected the sheep. When he said, I'll go out and protect the sheep to his father, the sheep were safe. They weren't in question. They were safe because David would give his life for those sheep. And you say, David, your life is worth far more than those sheep. Don't be fighting the lion. Don't be fighting the bear. But David said he'd do it. And he went out and he did it. Now, this is, this is the beginning of fruitfulness. It is honoring God right where you are, right with the challenges of your life. It's not some hypothetical victory over Goliath a decade in the future. It is the reality of where you are right now, what you're called to today, living for God. It begins by being willing to go out with the sheep and to work as the kid in the family, even though you have been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. But you have a job and you do it. Young men, you dream. Uh, I know. You sit in church and you dream of what you're going to do in life. You dream. Your, your dreams fill your mind. When you're not listening to me in the sermon, you're thinking, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to have. I'll be famous. I'll be this. I know it because I did it. And you're thinking, I'm going to be great. And the reality is the test of your greatness and the barometer or the, the wind vane that shows the direction you're headed in is not your dreams, but what you're doing right now at home. In other words, if your parents can't rely on you, when you say you'll take out the garbage to do it, you're not going to be David. Am I making sense? Fruitfulness begins where you are by honoring God in the situation you're in. We honor God where we are, with what we have. I know you're, some of your parents, and I've, as a parent, complained as well. Some of your parents have said to me, you know, my son dreams of great things, but I can't get him to get up in the morning. Well, I sympathize. <laughs> what am I supposed to say about not getting up other than that you should get up? I, I remember the years when I slept in and those were wasted years. And let me tell you, the trajectory of your life will be limited by how many years you give to waste. You spend too many years not getting up in the morning and not obeying your parents, not taking out the garbage, not being trustworthy, not being reliable, and you will be that way your whole life. And even if you come to know the Lord, even if you come to know that you're elect of God, there's going to be certain limitations on the fruitfulness of your life because of the way you wasted your life before that point. I say to you, don't think grand things about yourself. Think about shoveling the driveway before your dad gets up. Think about mowing the lawn and making sure it's well mowed and not cutting out from the mowing 
to go and be with your friends with the lawn half mowed. Think about the things that are part of your life right now. Young women, I'm not going to give you examples, but you know exactly what the examples are for your life. It's where you are right now. Whatever honors God, whatever honors God is fruitful. Whatever in your circumstances God would want you to do, that is the beginning of fruitfulness. You know, the, the obvious thing that should be done that no one's doing. You, you're in the youth group and everyone's mocking someone or people are talking and gossiping and everyone knows, but there's a little pleasure to it. And one of you says, you know, we shouldn't do this. That's honoring God. That's the person who's bearing fruit. So we have David here. And he's lived a life prior to this point that's a life of honoring God through obeying his parents and caring for what he has. And then he comes to be with his brothers and he's going around to the men and he's saying to them, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now, he says that in verse 26, you know. He says, what's going to be done? What's he trying to do? I think you know. It's like the little kid who's, who bugs you by saying, hey, look, we should do this. Hey, look, we should do this. And everyone says, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Pip squeak, go back, you know. We don't want to hear from you. You're not a part of this assembly. You're not part of this elite group. Go back. So David keeps on going. His brother yells at him, but you notice he goes right back to it, and he says, uh, what should be done? He asks the same question, we're told, all over again. He goes around asking it, so finally the word comes to Saul. There is this kid running around trying to encourage people to fight Goliath. Saul says, well, bring him here. He comes before Saul, and Saul says, okay, explain yourself, kid. And he says, hey, look, if no one's willing to do it, I'll do it. Saul says, you're a kid. You can't do this, you know. Goliath has been fighting in battle since he was your age, and, and you aren't even the age when he began. You know, you haven't done any of that stuff. David says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Then David goes out. To the Philistine, he goes out to battle after the intervening things, the steps, the armor, and so forth. And he says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I've come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've taunted. All right? And what David is saying is, you've been taunting God. You've been taunting God. You've been taunting God. This shouldn't happen. He has a, it's not about himself. It's not a vision of his own glory. He has a vision of the glory of God. And he's saying, God is great. Why does no one understand that God is great here? Why does no one want to defend the honor of God? Why is there no one? Well, I'll do it. I'll do it. What a glory it is when we see a young person say, you know, no one else will do it. I'll do it. I'll obey. I'll take the risk. Now, let me tell you, when you found your way to something that honors God, when you, in your life, are approaching the point of actually bringing honor to God in the way that David does here, 
you can tell that you're on your way there or you've arrived by two things, all right? First is that when you get to the point where you're going to honor God and bear fruit by just saying, I'm going to obey God and I'm not going to be influenced in another way, to in another direction, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to honor God, you're going to know it because everyone around you is going to say, huh? You idiot. What are you doing? And they're going to say to you, well, it is good to honor God, you know. It's right that you honor God. But there's another way and a better way to honor God. So they're going to look at you, young ladies, as you say, I'm going to bear children for God. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get training. I'm going to be bright. I'm going to be a woman whose mind is developed. And I'm going to put it to the, service, the use and service of raising children for eternal life. And they'll say, well, yeah, good, honor God. But don't honor God by having children become something. You understand? How many of you have been told this? Don't waste that education. There's a better way to honor God. And you say, no, God has called me to honor him right here, right now. This is what I've been given, and I'm not going to turn aside from it to something that you think is better. Your parents will say it. They'll say, no, don't get married early. Or they'll say to you, don't have so many kids. Come on. And you will be in the position of having to defend yourself for seeking to honor God. If you find yourself being attacked for your willingness to honor God, then you know that you found your mark. Second thing that people will do is if they don't object to what you're wanting to do, they're going to tell you that you're not the one to do it. They'll say to you, okay, okay, this would honor God, but, you know, someone else should do it. David, let a big man do it. Let someone else do it. You're a little punk. And David says, I may be a little punk, but the thing needs being done, and I'm going to do it. So when you have people telling you you're not the one to do the thing, that it needs to be done, but you shouldn't do it, if there aren't other people standing in line ahead of you, you need to know that this is a sign that God has appointed you to that job. This is the reality. We honor God. We determine whether the action would honor God, whether it would bring fruit by honoring God, and then we go ahead. David decided. David knew it would honor God if he defeated Goliath. There's no question in his mind about it. He wasn't doing it for his own honor. He said, look, I'm not going to do it. This isn't going to be me. When I defeat you, Goliath, people will know that it's not by armies and it's not by strength that the battle is won, but that the battle is the Lord's, and that he has done it. He will give you into our hands. Nothing about David in this is self-glorifying. The things that honor God lift him up. We are taking risks for the gain that God will give because he died. We take the risks because he died. He died so that there is ultimately no risk in the risks we take. Now we think they're risky, but in the end there's no risk. David looks like he's going to pay a great price. The price that he pays is the price of glory. So we honor God where we are. Second, we bear fruit 
if we're going to bear fruit, by embracing death. And this is a, this is a truth that has two sides to it. David goes out to fight Goliath, and he knows he may die. And he has to accept that. Now, he says, I'm not going to die, but he knows he may. He knows that he may, and yet he goes out and says, I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to die. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who say to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, bow down to my idol. He said, no, my God will save us. And if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. You must accept the cost of discipleship, of fruitfulness. Jesus said, unless a, a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. And this is your life. This is my life. If you are unwilling to pay the price of fruitfulness, you will never be fruitful. Husbands, this means constraining your hopes, constraining your dreams. In fact, often it means just rejecting your childhood dreams. Coming down to reality, to where God has placed you, and starting there, seeing what God will build from there, rather than dreaming these vain, grand dreams. I've... I think you and I have both known people who dreamt of huge things and never did little things. Because the little things are death, aren't they? You know, it doesn't seem like taking out the garbage, young men, is going to lead anywhere. It just seems like it's servitude. Seems like you're under your mother again and like it will never end, but it builds and it grows. It becomes something. Same is true of the work of women. Embrace death by bearing children. In America today, the birth rate has fallen below replacement level. We're as bad off as Korea and Japan at this point in the lack of desire to bear children of women and men. We are, we are declining in population and suddenly... All the warnings of Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb and overpopulation and all are being reversed. And we're saying now and we're hearing now, hey, wait a second, we need to have some kids. This nation needs kids. But for so long, we've said that kids are death to womanhood, that kids are a pain, that kids kill you. That We're not going to reverse this, this train overnight. The ones who reverse it will be you. God has called you to bear children. It's a kind of death, isn't it? It's putting to death the grand plans and accepting that your name is going to be forever linked with your husband's, not standing on its own, that your name is going to be put in the Bible as the mother of so-and-so rather than as the doer, probably. You're going to be embracing this kind of death. But there is such glory in it, such power. And l let me add that, that brothers, and s uh, until... 1800, the death rate of women in childbirth was, was incredible. About one in a hundred women died during pregnancy or childbirth until 1800, and even actually into the 1900s early. One in a hundred. Probably worse uh, back earlier.
it was so bad in, in terms of death that um, they used to do a service. There's a service in the Book of Common Prayer that's called the Churching of Women. Have you ever heard of this service? The Churching of Women? It's a service that was to be done about a month after a child was born to give praise to God for saving the mother's life in childbirth and in pregnancy. And it was done even if the child died. Even if the child died, they held this service to thank God that the mother had come through and to bless her. So children died often in childbirth, but mothers died at a rate of one out of 100. And that's through the 1800s when sanitation had become a thing. One out of 100. In other words, if in the 20th century, the last century, women had died at the rate they did in the 19th century, giving birth to children, there would have been about approximately 100 million women who would have died over the course of that century giving birth to children. You know that? Do you know how many people died in armed conflict as soldiers during the 20th century? About the same number. Maybe a little more, and maybe more women would have died. Women, bearing children is no less physically courageous than fighting in the army. In fact, you are more likely in America t t today to die because of your commitment to bearing fruit by having a child than you are to fight in the army. In the 20th, 21st century, there's been very, very little death in the armed forces. More women have died from childbirth. You must embrace death. But I, I want to say, and I must point out, that the death you embrace is not your own necessarily. Because here we see David going out to do battle, and he doesn't intend to die himself. What does he intend to do? He intends to kill, right? David intends to kill. And if you've read the Bible recently and you're reading through the Bible this year, you're going to find it's an exceptionally what we call sanguinary book. Sanguinary means filled with blood. And that all the great men of, of the Bible were, in one sense or another, but usually in the literal sense, warriors. Moses was a warrior. Abraham was a warrior. David was a warrior. Now God did say to David, you don't get to build my temple because you've been a man of such blood. You've killed so many people that I'm not going to let you build my temple. And his son Solomon after him was a kind of man of peace, right? And he lived in a time when he didn't really have to fight the battles that David had fought. And he wasn't the bloody man that David was. And so he got to build the temple. But of course, Solomon didn't have the character of David, did he? Because David's familiarity with fighting for the sake of God made him stand true to the end. And Solomon, in all his niceness, fell apart at the end. God has called you men and women to put to death in others and yourself what is in opposition to God. You are not called to simply stand by when God's honor is impugned and go, well, that's too bad. In a nation like America in this day, the possibility that you would fight, and whether physically or metaphorically, and kill someone for the sake of God is huge. 
You must oppose other people. There is no way you can lead a fruitful life in America today for God and not be a fighter. That's just no way. We think that Goliath is a mocker of God. What do we have in our Supreme Court, in our federal and state judiciary, in our state houses, in our houses of, of, of Congress? We have hatred of God that spews. And we're quiet. And we go, oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Has God given you no voice? Has God left us voiceless? Is there no opportunity to speak for the glory of God? To say, I'll stand up and I'll say what needs to be said. Whether I die or someone else is offended and in a sense dies or whatever. I'm going to do it. Look, you think Jesus came to be nice, but he never said he came to be nice. He said he came to fight. You understand that? Matthew, he says, don't think, this is the words of Jesus, we've already read this, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me, he who has found his life will lose it. He also says in Luke, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Sword, fire. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, to divide, to bring fire which burns. This is the calling of the Christian to be like David. Whenever God is impugned, whenever his honor is denied, to be the ones who say, I will stand for God. I am on the Lord's side. I will not be with his foes. We think through and how often the ministry of great men of God was an entirely negative kind of killing ministry. They're pulling weeds. They're not planting. They're pulling weeds so that someone in the future can plant. Elijah. Elijah kills the prophets of Baal. Kills them. He's a fighter. And he's constantly going out and being in people's faces and metaphorically pulling the weeds of Israel. Elisha, after him, the same thing. You think of Moses and the Passover and how he has, by the power of God, the firstborn of all Egypt put to death. Peter does this as well on the day of Pentecost when he goes out and he preaches to the crowds who are wondering about the things that are going on, the things they're seeing, and the, and the Christians. And he says to them, look, this Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has made both Savior and Lord. He's killing them. He's hitting them. He's punching them in the nose. He's a battler. He's a fighter. Mothers, you're not going to raise godly children if you're not a fighter. Fathers, if you're not fighting at home and at work and in the world, you're not honoring God. Now, fighting is, is in the end not the, the sole way we bring fruit. But many lives are lives that are fighting so that fruit can come in years to come. This is the truth of, of Elijah. This is the truth of so many of the prophets. They just had to fight, fight, fight. And at some point, fruit came, but sometimes it wasn't ever in their lifetime. This is the life of Luther. He fought and fought. He fought Erasmus, the, the defender of the papacy. He fought the Pope. He fought the Catholic Church. He fought everyone. 
And by the end of his life, something had been born, but it was small. He had no idea how his life of fighting, that man of, of battle, how he had changed the world. It was seen in years to come. So what are you going to do? How are you going to fight? I'll tell you why you're not fighting outside and why you don't have influence in the world. It's because you're not fighting the first battles and pulling the weeds in your own life. You're not killing yourself. David had killed himself before he went to kill Goliath. He had put to death his own desires. He had been willing to fight the lion and the bear for the sake of stupid sheep. For the sake of a few stupid, crummy sheep, he was willing to die. Grabbing a lion, grabbing a bear, and ramming them through with his sword or his knife, whatever it was, while he was out there guarding his father's flock. He had killed his own sin, his own pride. And thus he was equipped to do something greater. You must kill sin in yourself. There's no, no reason. There's no excuse. There's no way that you can be fruitful and not kill your sin. You must kill the sin that's around you in the church. I'm, in a sense, I'm grateful that at times God sends our church through things like COVID. Because what COVID does is it kind of I tell you, you don't know who it's going to be or how, but it, it's like a ship going through like they do to, with uh, ships when they get barnacles on them. They put them through a very tight passage that, that sort of scrapes them clean and pulls all the barnacles and the seaweed off the side of the ship. And I forget the name of the process, but it's, there's a technical term for it. It's cleaning off the encumbrances. God has sent us through COVID and it has killed our church in places. People no longer with us, people no longer worshiping who were here. And it's something that God says, I will prune you if I love you. It's always good to go through, it's painful, it's terrible. We don't rejoice at the consequences of the people who are missing, but we see that God has put some to death in our midst. They're no longer alive in us, and it may be that they come to life elsewhere or after a time, but this is the work of God. And he says to us, you are to do this as well. Let judgment begin in the church. We challenge each other. We say to each other, hey, that's not right. And we expect it back in return. I expect it back as a pastor. I hope for it. I never like it. But it's always good for me. And it's the same with you. Then you go on once you've done with yourself and with the church to the world. All of you are ordained to be killers for God against sin, against his enemies, warriors wielding his word, killing the sin in your children, putting it to death. Third, having embraced death, David states his goal and he says what he's going to do. When he's doubted by Saul, he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Then when he gets out and he's with Goliath and Goliath is mocking him, he says basically the same thing with more elevated language to the Philistine. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom, I, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of your army to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. He states his goal. From the outset, he says, I'm going to fight and I'm going to win. 
Now, I can't tell you how important this is to fruitfulness. Many of you are stating a wish, a hope, a kind of daydream when you say what you want to do for God. It has never risen to the level that it rises to here with David when he says it's an accomplished fact. It's going to happen. I was talking to a father yesterday who told me that in raising his children, he said, they had no choice. He said, they're going to follow God. He said, they had no choice. It was going to happen. That's the kind of faith that God rewards. It's going to happen, and thus everything is predicated on this is going to happen. It's not a vague hope. It is the reality you live under. You live under it. David has already killed Goliath by the time he goes out. Now you say, how could it be that Goliath might have won? Well, Goliath wasn't going to win, was he? But David had to embrace when he went out there as a man that this was scary. He had to embrace the possibility of death. But he went out and he declared to the world that he was going to win. This is the the problem with many of us in our fight against sin. I was talking with a young man this week who said that he had been talking with several other young men about their desire to overcome pornography, temptation to porn. And he said that the suggestion was made that we should go and confess it to the elders. And that he had responded, no, we're not going to go and confess it to the elders. We're going to fight it and win, and then we're going to go and tell the elders that we've won. Let me tell you, that's how victory is won. It's not a wish, it's an act. It's an accomplished fact. And so the fourth one is after stating your goal, after embracing death, after living where the battle really is, is to take action. And David, in their story, is offered the armament of Saul, but he rejects it and he goes down and he picks up five smooth stones. Why does he reject the armor of Saul? Well, he knows that if he puts that armor on, it's foreign to him. It's not really him. He can't do it. He's not made for it. It's not his, and it's not going to lead him to victory. He's going to be trusting in the armor rather than trusting in God. And so he takes the armor off and says, forget it. And he goes down to the brook and he picks up five smooth stones, which is what he'd have done as a shepherd. We must take real action if we're going to bring fruit to God. We must not take grandiose actions that we never are going to follow through on. We must do what we can right where we can. Take action in accord with what you know will bear fruit for God by honoring God. Do what you can do. Don't pretend. Don't claim to be doing things that you'll never do and you haven't done in the past. Do what you can do. If you are drinking and you can't get over it, what you can do is say, this day I don't drink. If you're on drugs, you can say, I, you know, if you were going to spend, and this is one of the things I learned when I was drinking, I would drink, 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 drink. But when my mother came to town, I could go three days straight without drinking. Right? Why? 
well, this is my mother, you know? It's not cool to be drunk around your mother when you're in your 20s. So I wouldn't drink for three days. Then I'd go right back, drink, drink, drink. Well, what it taught me is that I'm in control. I do what I want to do, right? That I'm in control, and when I don't want to drink, I don't drink. All of you who are addicted to something know that in a moment, you can say no. But what you don't choose to do is to make that moment your whole day. So make the moment the whole day. Make your actions real, not hypothetical and in the future. And I, I want to say to you, for many of you, your phone is the most Satan-inspired idol in your life. Am I right? There is a way to get rid of the phone, isn't there? Everyone says to me, I can't live without my phone. But you can live without your phone, can't you? You actually can. You can get a flip phone, or you can do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to put this down and not pick it up for the week. And then I'll talk to you next week. I have this little watch. It actually has, it's a $300 watch, and it has a little phone in it. And I can call you from it right now. And it doesn't get Facebook or any of the crud. And it doesn't get pictures. But you can send texts. You can make calls. You can even play music over your car stereo on it. It's rather fancy. There are simpler things like it out there. And I'm going to go for a week without it. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say to you, how many of you are struggling with things that are tied to your phone? How many of you are fighting and really not fighting because the one thing that you can do that will be success, which is to put this aside, you're not willing to do. So next week, I'm going to ask some of you to put your phones aside as well, those of you who are willing to try. And I'll tell you next week whether it's worked for me using this because I know I have to communicate, right? But I don't have to have a phone. I don't have to waste the time on it. Now, this is a simple thing, isn't it? And you may not have this watch, all right? But I guarantee you, if you decide that you're going to make this change, that we'll help you get the money or God will give you the money to buy a watch like this, right? Talk to me and I'll help you. I'm serious. If you're willing to give up your phone and you want to go to a watch, you already have the plan, it will fit right on. It will be a cheaper plan. I'll help you. Take real action and quit us sitting and talking hypothetically. This is fruitfulness, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we will no longer be people who like to talk about being fruitful but hate the cost. Make us men and women who are willing to pay the cost of obedience to you and being fruitful. We pray, Father, that you'll be with us, that we will fight the idols that Satan parades before us to keep us from knowing the glory of God and that we'll be like David who sees the glory of God standing transcendent above everything. May we be like him. May we be fruitful like him. May we have the joys that he had. Father, pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.